0: Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. Spring is a big and dangerous time for thunderstorms and tornadoes in places along the Gulf Coast, like southern Louisiana. But every place has its potential for natural disasters, right? You got wildfires out west, flooding in the east, earthquakes, hurricanes, heat waves. It's all a bit much. And of course, with climate change, things don't seem to be getting any better. Which is why it's important for institutions to be prepared. That's the argument Juliette Kaye makes in her new book, The Devil Never Sleeps. She's a former Homeland security analyst who has thought a lot about the inevitability of disaster. Now, that might sound obvious, right? Be prepared. But in this interview with NPR Steve Insky, she talks about human nature and this little thing about human nature that makes preparing so difficult. Is it possible to engineer our way out of the climate crisis? Some entrepreneurs want to shoot particles into the stratosphere to combat global warming. Experts say regulations on this technology aren't keeping up. The world of solar geoengineering on the latest episode of The Sunday Story from NPR's Up First podcast. From your car radio to your smart speaker, NPR meets you where you are in a lot of different ways. Now we're in your pocket. Download the NPR app today.
1: Homeland Security analyst Juliette Kayyem says she grew up expecting disaster. It was a side effect of living in earthquake-prone California.
2: We were prepared in ways that seemed so normal, and that's how we need to get with all disasters now. I mean, we, we did earthquake drills. We had a list of everyone's phone numbers. I knew where to walk to if I was away from home. Those are the kinds of investments that we can make on an individual level.
1: The former Department of Homeland Security official is making an argument for a particular kind of readiness, prepping for an age of more frequent disasters, which she writes about in a book called The Devil Never Sleeps.
2: In an age that we are in where disasters are not random or rare, we we basically need to learn to fail safer. And I think that's inevitable, but I also think that it is hopeful because it will help save lives and, and curb destruction.
1: Are you assuming that the world is changing in a way that will make disasters more frequent or feel more commonplace, at least to Americans?
2: Yes. I mean, and I look at the numbers. I mean, if you if you just take a three year period from 2017 to 2020, the United States had seven what we call hurricane disasters. So that's over a billion dollars in damage that total was about 335 billion dollars of damage in all of the 1980s there were 6 and their damage was just about 38 billion and this is all you know adjusted for inflation so you can just see in the numbers alone that we're suffering these disasters and consequences because of the changing climate because how we live and our connectivity which is you know both a blessing and a curse and so they will keep coming and it's not just the climate disasters it's it's the cyber disasters and of course what we've experienced the last couple of years with the pandemic so what do we do about that <laughs> well i think I'm, i mean part of it is redefining success I'm, i i'm in a very simple profession i often say what we do is not rocket science you know we tend to divide the world into just two phases right there's right and left of boom and the boom is agnostic it could be a cyber attack a terror attack a pandemic. And left of boom is all the things we try to do to prevent the harm, and right of boom is all the stuff we do to try to recover. And success is generally viewed as, can we stop that bad thing from happening? And failure is when we can't. And I think now we need to prepare for disruptions, That that sort of moment of the boom as a common phenomenon, and view success as whether those preparations essentially led to less harm and destruction than might otherwise have occurred.
1: So we don't prepare to prevent a disaster. We yeah. prepare for the inevitability of disaster. And you go through some case histories from different countries. What did a Japanese nuclear disaster about a decade ago show you about preparedness?
2: Well, this is, this is interesting. Well, everything I do is interesting. Let me go back. Uh, so we, we... <laughs> it's good to feel that way about your job, but go on. Uh, no, Okay, so let's go back. Uh, so the Fukushima nuclear meltdown happened in 2011. And most people who think about the earthquake and then the tsunami and then the meltdown, you know, are sort of narrated as, well, nuclear energy and nuclear facilities are inherently unsafe. And that, that is true. But we do a lot of things that are inherently unsafe. We get into metal tubes and fly across the country or across the world And what I didn't know until more recently was that there was actually another nuclear facility, Onagawa. Just down the street from Fukushima, it was hit harder. It was closer to the epicenter. It it also suffered from the tsunami. But because the people at Onagawa prepared to fail safely, they understood that they could respond to something, some disruption— and avoid the worst, which was, of course, radiation meltdown. Uh, They were prepared for it, uh, they built for it, and they had emergency response features that were very, very sophisticated so that in the moment of that boom, when the water was coming, the Fukushima folks sort of stood there and just watched the water come over the facility where the Onagawa folks were ready to shut it down. So the difference between a radiation leak and a not radiation leak is the lesson learned, and they were ready to fail.
1: Is there something about human nature that makes
2: it (laughs) hard for us to prepare? Yes, absolutely. And we have a a name for it. It's called the preparedness paradox. It is the, the more we prepare for bad things, the less the destruction is. And then everyone wonders why the heck were we so prepared or why did we need to get prepared? The best example of that is, of course, Y2K when the computer switched over to 2000. There was a lot of focus on getting the computers ready because we didn't know if they would, you know, go to 0000 or the year 1000. That effort was actually successful because nothing happened on January 1st when the computers changed to the year 2000. Looking back or the narrative of Y2K, it's often described as being an overreaction to a threat. The reality is it was because the preparedness worked. So we call that the preparedness paradox because you never can win. And you've got another
1: example that gets to this question of preparedness and the human difficulty of being prepared. You compare the 2004 tsunami that devastated Indonesia and lots of other places Mm -hmm. with a later occasion when there was a tsunami warning. What do you get from that?
2: I didn't know much about tsunamis before the 2004 devastation, which killed 250,000 people in the moment when the waters hit shore. And common sense would have us believe that, well, if you were close to the water when the tsunami was coming, you were dead. And if you were further away, you could survive. And going back, that actually turned out to not be true, that older communities on the shorelines, uh, you know, villages that had been there a while, understood uh, how to read the ocean. Uh, when the ocean goes still, and the water start to recede, they say, run for the hills. And so they understood what was happening for newer villages and immigrant villages. And of course, tourists who are in hotels, they see the water recede and they think it's a curiosity. It's a, you know, interesting phenomenon. And so when we went back, it showed that proportionally those who understood how to read the oceans survived in greater numbers. So what do you do if you're that country? Well, you say, okay, I better tell everyone that when the waters recede, run for the hills. So you saw significant changes in. information and education. So fast forward to 2011, there's another major earthquake in the ocean and they don't know whether a tsunami is coming. So the alarms go off, they start communicating to people and people start running for the hills. Fortunately, there was no tsunami, but it was a test of that preparedness system that said we actually can't stop the tsunami. But if it had hit in 2011, lots fewer people would have perished. That is success. And that's how we have to to view it in an age of disasters.
1: Juliette Kayyem's new book is The Devil Never Sleeps. Thanks so much.
2: Thank
0: you. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase— and an opportunity—the opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip? That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR.
2: I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go: there's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR, where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wild Card wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.
1: I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln?